0: Since we have moved to the live stream, uh, I have not preached, at least what I consider to be a a normal sermon. I typically, systematically work through a book of the Bible. Before COVID hit, uh, I was in uh, the book of Acts, walking us through the history of the early church. Paul was in Philippi, and that, to me, seems like a long time ago. When I knew that we wouldn't be meeting together for a while, I decided to Pick some texts, some verses really that we could meditate on together during these extraordinary times that the virus forced us to be the church scattered. Uh, I chose verses which lend themselves well to practical self-examination. And I did this because I, I don't want this season of forced isolation to go to waste. I recognize that increasingly, uh, around us. Uh, life is slowly getting back to normal, but we are a relatively large congregation, and so we have a little bit more forced isolation to deal with. And and, and, and even when we are unable to gather together and study the Bible together in the same room, uh, we still have eyes that we can open up and read the Bible on our own. We still have knees that we can bend and pray, Before the Lord on our own. And and I hope that we have increasingly a renewed sense of urgency to recommit ourselves to the Lord during these extraordinary times. None of us have arrived. We are all works in progress. And the Christian will take advantage of every opportunity, every circumstance, and every trial. To grow in grace and in godliness. My wife and I took uh, a walk. Uh, We've been walking, I think, more than ever. But We took a walk around the block uh, the other night, and we were wrestling just in our own lives with this question of whether or not we're seeing uh, revival take place, you know, in in our own lives as, as I'm giving these messages to you, urging you to lean into, pray for revival. And we were commenting on how at least in in one way we've seen significant growth in our lives as God has used the pandemic to sort of force us to be better neighbors in our own community than we've ever been before, and we're really grateful to God for that. Our time of separation for all of us should be a time of self-examination, an opportunity to pray that God would rain down revival on our church and in our hearts now, by now, you, you know the analogy that I'm using. Your life is like a spiritual house, and it has many rooms, and we are called to inspect each of them, to look around, to see what aspects of the room need to be renovated or improved. And the room that we're examining today is not small. It is much less like a closet and much more like the living room. And above the threshold of this particular room is written the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, words spoken by the Lord, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, holiness is a sore subject for many today, even in the church. Some people, I think John was sort of alluding to this in his introductory remarks a few minutes ago, but some people hear the word holiness And they immediately think about that old and misguided adage about the Puritans, Christians who are afraid that someone, somewhere, is having a good time. A lot of people hear the word holiness and they think about something like that. Well, that's not true at all. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not opposed to your happiness. But he knows that your your ultimate happiness is rooted in your present holiness. And that is a distinctly Christian doctrine that we want to think about today. God's exhortation to you and to every Christian on the face of this planet is, you shall be holy for I am holy. This morning I want to talk to you about holiness. I'm going to to leave you with three observations about holiness I want to leave you with so many more, but time, I think, allows us only three. I'm hopeful that if you do have a biblical understanding of holiness, you will better love and serve our God, who is himself holy. All right, first, there is no holiness without God. There is no holiness without God. Now, I know that's an obvious statement to make, it's straightforward, you probably think, that I don't even need to mention it. Still, this is where I want to start. This is where we need to start. I've got to be clear about this. I don't want to assume anything because if that simple point isn't clear in your mind, your path to holiness will be disabled from the start. God says in verse 16, for I am holy. God is the standard of holiness. He is the reason for holiness. He is the beginning of holiness. No God, no holiness. If I were to explain generosity to you, I might ask you to think about a famous philanthropist like J. Paul Getty or Bill Gates, wealthy businessmen who generously gave away vast quantities of wealth. It's Mother's Day, so it's appropriate to call your attention to a mother who goes without sleep, a mother who goes without new clothes so she can generously spend time with, serve, spend money on her children. I might think of a spiritual mother in the church, maybe a woman who doesn't have biological children of her own, but who so faithfully and carefully tends to the needs of younger sisters in the Lord, generously giving of herself. Well, these illustrations, the philanthropist, the mother, may help you understand something of what it means to say that that God is generous. I start with philanthropists and mothers to help you understand something of, of God. But holiness is different. There's no way for our finite, fallible, fallen human minds to truly grasp what it means to say that God is holy. We can't start with man and scale our way up to God. It won't work. Holiness is a way to describe the, the otherness of God, the way God is entirely different from us. He's not like us. It's a way to describe the the transcendence of God. He's higher than us in every conceivable way, but not not higher to us the way a mountain is superior to a hill. No, No, higher than us in the way that a human is superior to a slug. To say God is holy is really another way of saying, we are not God. Stephen Harnock, in his classic work, The Existence and Attributes of God, said we can't fully wrap our minds around God. He wrote, God's nature is so great that he cannot be declared by human speech, perceived by human sense, or conceived by human understanding. Another theologian, R.C. Sproul, argued that the best word to describe God is the word holy. He put it this way. When the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is Holy Spirit. The term holy calls attention to the transcendence of God, the sense in which he is above and beyond the world. Now, sometimes, In the rarest of circumstances, we will describe human beings in close to transcendent terms. So, I'm old enough to remember that Muhammad Ali was called the greatest. And we're all old enough to recognize that Michael Jordan is often referred to as the greatest of all time. But we understand, don't we, that when we say that God is holy, we're we're not simply saying that God is the greatest though he is, when we call God holy, we're recognizing that God is entirely different from us. That's another thing altogether. God is not a better version of ourselves. God is God. God is not to be judged by us. He is holy. Right? God is not to be quarreled with. When his ways don't suit our expectations of what life should be like, he is holy. God is not obligated to answer our questions or to fit into our boxes. No, he is holy. Many people dismiss the God of the Bible because they don't like what they read about God in the Bible. God is not asking to be liked. He is not Sally Field, tearing up at the Oscars, crying out, you like me, you really like me. God doesn't need our praises. God does not require our affection. We don't hold God in the palm of our hands. He holds us in the palm of his hands. He is sovereign, we are subjects. He is holy. Now, look again at 1 Peter 1, verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So God is holy. And therefore, Peter says, God is the judge. And one day, We will stand. We will all stand before him and give an account for our lives. None of us, none of us deserve entrance into the kingdom of God. Each of us deserves death and judgment and hell. And only through faith in Christ will any of us be saved on that final day, that day of judgment, a day that... Peter speaks about so often in this letter. But if our faith is genuinely in Christ, if our faith is real, if it's true, it will result in good works. Good, good works. And God on that last day will judge us in the sense that he will look at our works and see if they do in fact bear witness to our words to our faith. I like the saying that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. And God, God is the one to judge if those works are good. He will ask if our lives match our lips, if our walk matches our talk he's the judge. He's holy. Now, in that sense, in that sense, our holy God is to be feared, verse 17. He is to be feared, and we don't like to talk about fearing God, but there is a tension in the Bible, and we must not water down this tension. So, on one hand, God is Father, that's how verse 17 begins. God is Father. He is our kind and generous and loving Father. And as our Father, He is to be embraced by us. And this is true for every Christian. At the same time, God is Judge, and therefore, as Judge, He is to be feared. That's the end of verse 17. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10 28. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, the best way that I know to explain this tension is the way that I've explained it before. I think I've explained it this way many times before, but the best way that I know to explain this tension that we find in the Bible between God as father to be embraced and God as judge to be feared is to think of God as a tall and rocky and dangerous mountain that you are in the process of climbing. Now at the bottom of the mountain, the journey is relatively easy and the paths are fairly wide. It's no problem at all. But as you get higher up this mountain, the journey gets more difficult. There are steep cliffs that occasionally you have to scale. And sometimes the path is so narrow that you nearly fall off of the mountain. And if you fall off of the mountain, you will certainly fall to your death because it's a high mountain and it is filled with jagged, sharp rocks. So. On the one hand, the mountain is terrifying because it can kill you, but on the other hand, your only hope is to cling to the mountain, right? The mountain is to be feared because from it you can fall and die. But the mountain is to be loved because as you cling to the mountain, you find safety. So in that way, the mountain is both terrifying and life-giving or life-preserving. So in the same way, our God, our holy God, is both to be feared and he's to be embraced. He's to be followed. Let go of him and you die. Cling to him and you live. And so we don't do ourselves any favors as we think about the holiness of God by watering down the fear of the Lord. The wise man and the wise woman will fear the Lord. We will live with a proper understanding that to say God is holy means we don't approach him with what Michael Horton once called a a greasy familiarity. God is not our best buddy. He's not our pal. God is God. He is holy and he is to be feared, but he is father. He's father and he's to be followed. So how do we follow our holy God How do we cling to him? Well, there's only one way, 1 Peter 1, 16. You shall be holy. Now, this does not mean that you can become God, that's impossible, but what does it mean? It means that, that something of the otherness of God rubs off onto his children. It means there needs to be a difference, there needs to be a distinction between you and the world in which you live. It means that you have to live in such a way that it's obvious to everyone that that you belong to God. Pastor J.C. Ryle hit the nail on the head when he wrote, a holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will have a decided bent towards God, a hearty desire to do his will a greater fear of displeasing him than displeasing the world. Do you see there how God is the reference point for our holiness? He's the scale to make sure our weights are accurate. He's the plumb line to make sure our paths are straight. He's the light to keep us from walking in darkness. So let me ask you, do you have a decided bent towards the mind of God? Right? Even now, as you are unable to gather with the entire congregation in the quietness of a quarantine, do you have a decided bent toward the mind of God? Do you have a hearty desire to do His will, a hearty desire? Not an I have to, but an I get to. Do you have a, great fe- a greater fear of displeasing Him than displeasing The world these would be good questions to walk through with someone who knows you well now before I move on I want to speak to the kids again it's well I was I want to say it's good to see you but I don't see you but I want to speak to you because I know you're there kids do you mind looking at verse 14 of 1st Peter chapter 1 where Peter writes as obedient children Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, I want to unpack that sentence just for you. So stick with me, kids. A couple of things I say here might be a little bit hard to follow. So I need you to concentrate. Now, let me break this down. By former ignorance, Peter is referring to the days before his readers knew the gospel. Right? Most of his readers, unlike you, would not have grown up in Christian homes. They would have remembered seasons, times, maybe even decades of their lives where they didn't even know who Jesus is. They grew up ignorant of the gospel. They wouldn't have known when they were children what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. And so when Peter writes, do not be conformed, to the passions of your former ignorance, he means don't let the desires or the passions that you had before you were a Christian, don't let them shape you, don't let them form you, don't be conformed to them. Now, we all know what this means. We all know what it's like to have desires or passions that are bigger than they should be, right? Like a, like a passion to eat ice cream before dinner. You know, that's a a passion, a desire. And you know you shouldn't. Oh, but it's hard. Well, have your parents ever told you about Eric Little? He was a fantastic sprinter from Scotland who ran. He ran so fast. And he ran in the Olympics in 1924. Eventually, Eric became a missionary. And Eric was passionate about running. He loved to run. Running was his ice cream but he was even more passionate about God. And Eric's conscience wouldn't let him compete in races on Sunday. He sat out of an event at the Olympics because it was a Sunday, and he most certainly gave up a gold medal that he would have won. Why? Well, Eric didn't want to be conformed or shaped by passions even a good passion, like a passion for running. He wanted to be shaped more than anything by a passion, a desire for God. Now, okay, kids, So, well, why have I singled you out here? Well, look again at how verse 14 begins. As obedient children. An obedient child is someone who strives to honor and obey his parents. So when Peter wants us, all the readers of his book, to be holy and honor God, who does he he tell us to look at? He tells us to look at obedient children as our examples. Do you see what this means? Every time you humbly and happily obey your mom and dad, you're teaching me and other adults what it looks like for God to be your greatest passion, your greatest desire. Isn't that amazing? That means you're a gift to the church as you model obedience to your parents, giving us a little picture of what it's like for Christians to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. All right, that was the first observation that I wanted to make. There is no holiness without God, God is holy. He is other than us. If we are his people, something of his otherness will rub off on us, and we will be other from the world. Now, a second observation. There is no holiness without suffering. Now, what I mean is this. Suffering is the school that God has established. It's the the curriculum that God has written for our holiness. God sends and he allows suffering in our lives to move us in the direction of holiness and to turn us into the men and women that he wants us to be. Now, before I say anything more, I I want you to listen to Peter. I want you to see how Peter connects suffering and holiness. There are many examples from First Peter. I'll give you just a few. Look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the trials these believers faced caused them to experience grief. They grieved the pain, they grieved the suffering, but the suffering had a purpose to refine or perfect their faith so that on the day of judgment, on the last day, the end of history, This is the day that Peter calls the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's referring to Jesus' second coming, when Jesus is revealed to all of humanity, the revelation of Jesus Christ. On that day, the trials that come to us, they come to us on that day. They come to us so that on that day, our faith and our lives, which have been filled with trials, would result in praise and glory and honor. In other words... As we are being refined in suffering, sharpened in suffering, our character is being improved so that when Jesus comes back, our lives will be genuinely praiseworthy, glorious, and honorable. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul well there's the command we're told to abstain to cease from the passion of the flesh which wage war against our soul our flesh that's our our not, not just our body but it's a, it's it's a, it's the part of our lives that uh, live in tension with God, the part of us that doesn't want to do what God wants us to do, right? Our, our flesh, our body is filled with passions that just aren't good, right? They're sinful and we aren't to give into them. We're to abstain from them. And this fight is hard. It's not easy. Why is it hard? Because it's, a, it's, it's, it's almost as if these passions have a life. I mean, it feels like these passions are, are, are alive in us. Beating back these passions, these desires to do that which we know we should not do, it's like, it's like beating back an army. You know, Peter calls it war. Uh, another illustration, fighting the sinful flesh can feel like trying to, to keep a, a hungry lion away from a red piece of meat. When all you've got is a, a piece of string strung around the lion's neck, it just feels impossible, right? The fight's not easy. We shouldn't expect it to be easy, Peter says. It's, it, it, it's a fight that we fight with our very, our very hearts. Now, of course, sometimes the war is actually brought to our doorstep. It's brought to us by other people. Sometimes Christians are slandered or made fun of for their faith and for their faithfulness. Look at you it at first Peter chapter three, verse fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, in other words, when we are suffering and when we are made fun of, but we're gentle and respectful toward those hurting us, well, we're pursuing holiness in the midst of our suffering. God sees this. God sees our holiness, and he uses it to speak out against our accusers, maybe even to shame them for accusing or making fun of or slandering or ridiculing God's people. Suffering and holiness, they they go together. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, flesh there is simply referring to Christ's physical body. Christ was without sin. He never had a sinful thought, much less a sinful action. But he suffered. He experienced pain in his mind and in his body. He never sinned, but he suffered, and he suffered horribly. We all know that. And knowing how much Jesus suffered, the Holy One of God, knowing how much the Holy One of God suffered should cause us, Peter says, and he uses the words, arm ourselves. It should cause us to arm ourselves, not with swords or with guns, but to arm ourselves with the realization that we will suffer too, as we follow Christ those who follow Christ will suffer like Christ. To follow Christ is to choose Christ over and against the world. And that will bring suffering. Now in that sense, choosing Christ is a painful decision. Like like choosing surgery, not because you want the pain, but because you want the healing that surgery promises to bring. It's only in surgery that we find healing and it's only in suffering That we find holiness and that's what peter means there in verse 1 whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin in other words whoever has pursued the surgery of christ will experience the holiness of christ suffering and holiness they go together now let's think about this for a second suppose you have a friend or a family member who wants you to sin Let's suppose you have a friend or a family member who wants you to sin. Maybe he wants you to take a bribe. Maybe he wants you to join him in in drinking too much. Maybe he wants you to gossip or to participate in some crass, inappropriate conversation. Now, Now, what happens when you refuse, when you take a stand? Well, you may lose the friendship. Your friends may laugh at you, they may mock you, and that will hurt. It's a kind of suffering, isn't it? But when you choose suffering over and against your friend, you're choosing Christ. You're choosing holiness. You're glorifying God as you run away from your sin. As Peter put it, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let me provide you another example. Let's think about what we look at with our eyes. It could be pornography. Uh, Maybe it's something explicit on television that your conscience tells you you shouldn't watch. Turning off that show can feel like war. In your flesh, you want to watch. In your flesh, you, you want what brings you pleasure now. There's no suffering in watching. Right. Watching in that sense is pleasing. But if you go to war, right, if you arm yourself with the realization that suffering is necessary, well, then you can truly fight. You can change the channel. You can shut down the website. You can run from what you know you shouldn't see. That decision is not easy. That's the point I'm trying to make. That decision is not easy, right? You're you're, you're fighting the flesh, the passions that rage inside of you. But that decision is good because that is the path to holiness. It's not that you'll be perfect, right? But when you decide to fight and only when you actually engage in war, in your flesh will you cease to sin. That's what Peter is saying. And now, there are so many other places that I could take you in First Peter throughout the Bible, but I think you've seen enough of the main point for it to sink in, right? The Christian life is like a war, a long, hard, painful battle against sin. Let's face it. We tend to get angry when suffering comes. We get bitter when life gets painful. We feel like God is against us when trials come our way, but suffering isn't a sign of weakness in fact when we see suffering as a scalpel in the hands of our holy god to make us holy well we can rejoice we can consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds we can believe that god is for us not against us in the midst of our sanctifying suffering look at first peter chapter 5 verse 6 humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, how can you read a passage like that and not conclude the Christian life is supposed to be hard? Right? There are so many battles to be fought, whether it's the world or the flesh. We're here now. Peter's talking about the devil prowling around the believer, trying to devour us. Like we're constantly under attack. This is the, this is reality. Right? This, may, this may not be what, what, what you're taught in school. Right? This may not be the, the truth that your companies are promoting. But friends, this is real. This is true. The world and our own flesh and the devil are conspiring against us that we might make a shipwreck of our faith. And we can't run away from these battles. We've got to run towards them. And this passage makes me think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said about the Christian life. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." Right? The gate to heaven is narrow. The way to heaven is hard. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise the path to the city of Zion is littered with stress and pain, problems and pandemics, quarrels and quarantines, bankruptcy and broken relationships, disappointments and disaster. And anyone who thinks the road to heaven is anything other than a steep uphill climb has yet to understand what Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly described as the cost of discipleship. I know these kind of words won't necessarily build churches numerically in the 21st century. But this is the truth. There is no holiness without suffering. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I don't want to discourage you. Look again at First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. How can we be sure that our suffering will one day end? How can we have confidence that God will, in fact, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us? There is only one answer that makes any sense. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How can we resist the passions of our former ignorance? How can we be holy in all of our conduct How can we be holy as God is holy? How can you wage war against your sin and fight this uphill battle for holiness? There's only one answer and it's in our passage. Earlier this week, uh, Dina told me that there's been a run on flour at the store and I did see it for myself. I went to Kroger and saw that there was no, uh, there was wheat flour, a little bit of wheat flour, but there was no normal flour and, and apparently, this is because you're doing a lot of baking at home, right? You're baking bread and muffins and cookies and cakes. And I bet a lot of you are baking from scratch, right? You're busting out grandma's recipes and trying them out and baking up a storm. So that's what you're doing. Now, my, I have to, it's Mother's Day. And, oh, I, I, I hope uh, my mom is, is watching. But my mom is an amazing cook really the the best cook I know. But for some reason, growing up cakes typically came from a box. Someone else did the hard work of measuring out and combining the ingredients. And if I recall, all that we sort of had to do is add a little bit of oil and eggs and voila, cake batter. Someone else did the hardest work. Well, it's not a perfect analogy at all, but it's like this with our holiness with our sanctification, it doesn't start with us. It starts with Christ. The hardest work has already been done. The batter has already been made. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing, this is what you need to know before you can truly fight for holiness. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you were Ransomed from a way of life that knew not Christ. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. No one bribed you into the kingdom of heaven. You didn't purchase your way into the kingdom of heaven. You weren't ransomed. You weren't purchased with money, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, before we can ever be holy, in all of our conduct, which is what this message has been about, we have to know the Holy One who went to the cross. He is the lamb without blemish or spot. If you are a Christian, it's because he died on the cross for for your sins. It's because he rose from the dead for your justification. It's because he bore in his own flesh the wrath of God that you so mightily deserved for your rebellion in thought and in deed. Our holiness depends upon his sacrifice, not ours. And without this gospel, we can do nothing. We meet the same idea in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, where Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, why? so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our life depends upon his death. Our righteousness depends upon his work. Our sanctification depends upon his suffering. Our holiness depends upon his sacrifice. There is no holiness without Christ now, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that if you want to be holy, the most important thing that you can ever do is, is lean into Jesus Christ to find your refuge in him, much like Noah and his family took refuge in the ark. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Hide yourself in the finished work of Christ trust in his death and resurrection. Holiness isn't finally a hill to be climbed, though the Christian life is hard. But holiness is ultimately a gift to be received from the arms of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the will of God the Father, which is our sanctification, our holiness. It's a gift for everyone who would know Christ as Savior and as Lord. It's for everyone who would know God as Father and as Judge. I love how J.I. Packer once put it, fundamentally, the factor that makes the difference in the pursuit of holiness is neither one's intelligence quotient, nor the number of books one has read, nor the conferences, camps, and seminars one has attended, but the quality of fellowship with Christ that one maintains through life's ups and downs. So how is the quality of your fellowship with Christ? Have you put your faith fully and finally in Him? Are you using this unusual, extraordinary season where our very churches for the moment are shut down. Are you utilizing this time to ask yourself the question, do I truly have fellowship with Jesus Christ? Am I really living for Him? Or am I living for the world? Because one day when Jesus comes back and we all stand before him, we will not be giving an account finally for the people around us. We will be giving an account for our own lives. So let this quarantine be a small but profound taste of the reality that we will be judged for our own lives. And only those who find themselves hidden in Christ Will live. No Christ, no holiness. So before I close in prayer, would you spend right now a few moments? I know if you're at home and you're all at home, kids are around, I don't know what just spilled on the coffee table. But if at all possible, take a few moments, reflect on your life, quiet the room, think about your own sin and your own need for a Savior. Think about Christ, and then I'll I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know intellectually that without God, there's no holiness, and at least this side of heaven, without suffering, there's no holiness. Without Christ, without the gospel, there's no holiness. We know that intellectually, but we confess that as as life picks up, as life carries on, Holiness is not always on the forefront of our minds. Sometimes we're just trying to survive through another day. Sometimes we're simply trying to keep a relationship we're in from falling apart. Uh, it's, it's difficult, Lord, for us to attend to those things that are, are most important you, your word, the gospel. And so we're grateful for the Lord's day. We're grateful that in your providence, you set aside a a day that we're to devote ourselves to thinking about you, to praying to you, to, to gathering with your people, that we might encourage one another, that we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, which means we're to spur one another on to holiness. How do we do that virtually, Father? It's not easy, but we come before you as sinners in need of a savior, We come before you so thankful to have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Father, if there's someone uh, watching this live stream who doesn't really know you, whose life falls so far short of the gospel that he or she is led to wonder whether he really knows Jesus Christ at all, oh, Father, would you direct right now that person to the cross of Christ? Would you humble that person that he or she might genuinely repent of life and put faith in Christ. Oh, Father, would you bring people into that person's life that he or she might understand what it means to follow Jesus firmly, steadfastly, and and faithfully. Father, we confess that no one who hears my words right now is the man, woman, or child he ought to be. We are all in need of your Holy Spirit to be at work in us, growing us, to lean into your grace more, and to model your godliness. We love you, we thank you for the power of the cross to truly change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.